You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Welcome to Redick Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we are the principals of Groundworks, Inc. We design, build, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Our show broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. Now, on our last show, we discussed the quintessential summer fruit, Alice, the peach. Peach. Sweet peach. So today's show is all about my personal favorite summer vegetable, which is really a fruit or a berry, botanically speaking, the tomato. 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 <laughs> anyway. Let's call the whole thing off. I grow my own tomatoes, and I wait all year long to eat them in summer because I won't buy them out of season. I'm very adamant about right. that. So I usually eat them right off the plant or I use them in a lot of summer dishes. And most people look forward to that first uh, tomato of summer, whether it's homegrown or, you know, from the farm stand. But there is one person that doesn't share my love of tomatoes, and that's my husband, Robin. And I told him we were going to talk about him today during the show. (laughs) Those who know us well know that he is an omnivore in the truest sense of the word. He will eat anything. Yeah. And my family has given him opportunities to eat things that would give most people pause. Pig intestine kebabs, an assortment of internal organs, and something we call roasted lamb face, for lack of a better term. (laughs) Delish. (laughs) Delish. Um... But he will not eat a raw tomato. He's repulsed. And I can't understand why. He's definitely in the minority, though, I think. Because for me, a tomato is like captured sunshine. So he won't just pick a tomato and eat it right off the vine? He will not. He will not. He, he, is, he will eat cooked tomatoes, and he doesn't drink, so we can't tempt him with the Bloody Marys that our guest Sarah Lohman brought. Yeah. Um, but is I, he an American? He is an American, <laughs> and he's married to an Italian, so there's something yeah. terribly wrong with the man who eats lamb face but won't eat a raw tomato. <laughs> anyway, um, they're, to me, they're, they're so unique. They have, they're tomato-y. Sure. They have that tomato taste, which is probably why he hates them. 
Now, I would venture to guess, and this is a very unscientific opinion because um, I didn't research it, that probably the tomato is the most commonly grown vegetable in people's gardens. Probably. It absolutely is. I yeah. was actually reading a book, and Sarah can probably talk <coughs> more about this. I was reading a, a early garden history, 1820 to 1850, and the tomato was in every single kitchen garden. Mm-hmm. But it was actually second, or, or, or beyond the, the four main crops were corn, beans, squash, and um, onions. Yeah, but, pro- right. but probably today, tomatoes are probably, because you can grow them. In, I think it's, it's also unavoidable, too. You plant one tomato plant, and if yeah. it does well, it just spits out tomato after tomato yeah. after yeah. tomato. Yeah. There's no avoiding them. Yeah. But, you know, the tomato didn't always have such a good reputation. In fact, for a long time, um, people like Robin, specifically Europeans, uh, were very suspicious of and even revile the tomato as poisonous and a product of the devil. Now, to understand why that happened, it helps to know a little bit of tomato botany. The tomato, Lycopersicon esculentum, also goes by a synonym, Solanum esculentum, is a member of the Solanaceae family, which includes the eggplants and potatoes, chili peppers, and even the common petunia. But it also includes some of the most deadly plants known to man, nightshade, mandrake, datura, and tobacco, which I also (laughs) include in the potentially toxic plant category. Now, tomatoes probably first came from Peru, I believe. Um, and the wild tomatoes can still be found today in the Andes. Mm-hmm. And by the time the conquistadors came to Central and South America, there was widespread cultivation of tomatoes. Though there's a lot of debate about where the tomatoes were first raised and exactly how they made their way into you know, Mexico. But the Spanish explorers did think enough of the tomato to bring it back to Europe, where it was embraced long before Americans embraced them here. We were really resistant to it. But the Europeans admired it, admired the plant more for its beauty and not for its taste because many people in Europe were hesitant to try it due to its similar appearance to its deadly cousins. Mm-hmm. It was very, very similar. Now, we have Joseph Piton de Tournefort to thank for giving, us the, giving the tomato its botanical classification. In 1692, he placed tomatoes in this new grouping of plants within Solanaceae. It was a classification he called Lycopersicon, meaning wolf peach. And so that's not a name that's going to conjure up warm, fuzzy feelings, yeah. you know? This Greek <laughs> I'd like a slice of wolf, wolf peach, peach on yeah. my sandwich. <laughs> so, well, this Greek term appears to follow an old German word for tomato, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. It's like wolf persic or something like that. Wolf persic something. <laughs> anyway, that translates something. into English as wolf peach. But be that as it may, in this often repeated version, the name wolf perch referred to the tomato's round shape, reminiscent of a peach, while the wolf modifier derived from the Germanic folk belief that werewolves could be called up using other members of the Solaniaceae family, such as nightshade and wolfbane. So in, at that time, only eggplant was familiar to Europeans in the 16th century. The others, like the tomato, came from the New World and were suspect. Sure. You know, they just weren't sure if it was good enough to eat. Now, the common name tomato I found really interesting derives from tomato, its name in the Nahuatl language of the Aztec people. The English form tomate first appeared in the 17th century and was later modified to tomato, probably under the influence of the more familiar potato. Most of these early fruits were actually yellow and became known as manzanas in, in Spanish, mm-hmm. meaning apples, and pomidoro, apple of gold, in Italian. So, of course, just to seal the tomato's sinister fate, all parts of the plant, with the exception of who actually are poisonous, 
And perhaps to emphasize that exception, more recent botanists have backpedaled, adding esculentum, which means edible, to the beleaguered tomato's name to give us Lycopersicon esculentum, or edible wolf peach. Now, that's a mouthful. No wonder Robin doesn't want to eat it. It's an edible wolf peach. Unfortunately, this rearguard action came too late to redeem the tomato for our colonial forebears. Now, there's another theory um, why tomatoes got off to a rocky start in the U.S., and it also focuses on names. This time, the names involved are the earliest European ones, such as the Italian Pomidoro or the even more evocative French Pomme d'Amour, Love Apple. Such names, goes the theory, were hardly of the sort to make Puritans feel easy. You know, feel at ease with the tomato, a love apple or a golden apple, just too tempting for the Puritans to consider eating. Right. right. Um, it went from one extreme to the other. <laughs> right. Right. So, Alice, why don't you talk a little bit about um, how Americans finally did accept um, the tomato and you know started eating right. it and, and how the American public kind yeah, of embraced yeah, this wolf eventually peach. wolf peach. <laughs> well, according to the writings of Peter Hatch, who's the director of Monticello Gardens and Grounds in Virginia, Jefferson grew tomatoes, and his daughters and granddaughters used them in numerous recipes, including our famous American gumbo. The Jefferson women also pickled them and, in general, promoted their use in cooking. This claim is, of course, disputed by other authorities, such dispute apparently being the name of the game in tomato scholarship. (laughs) In an article written in the year 2000, Hatch said that in an 1824 speech given to the Arboral Agricultural Society, Jefferson's son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, mentioned that enough tomatoes were hardly known 10 years prior in 1824, everyone was growing and eating them. So they accepted them pretty quickly. Yeah, into that is the a, that's a pretty big curve, yeah. or a quick curve. Even if we lose the Jefferson as promoter of the tomato theory, there does appear to be a great number of anecdotes to choose from, all equally suspect, historically speaking, and entertaining. One is from... Uh, the Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson in 1830 who set out to eat a basket of tomatoes on the steps of the local courthouse where a crowd collected to watch him foam at the mouth (laughs) and and twitch and and generally carry on until he finally expired. They fully expected him to die. Yeah, yeah. But this is also, you know, vaudevillian, you know, entertainment. So when he didn't, you know, the legend was changed and tomatoes were redeemed and gradually accepted as food, um, though preferably in a high processed form or probably in a cocktail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but back to the present. Since we've now overcome our fear of tomatoes, Americans, of course, have fallen in love with them and burpees made a fortune off of them. <laughs> yes. The tomato, of course, is the state vegetable of New Jersey. I think everybody knows that. Jersey tomatoes still can't get rum to eat one. That's right. <laughs> and Arkansas has it both ways. The tomato is both the state fruit and the state vegetable. The USDA reports that each of us consumes close to 20 pounds of fresh tomatoes every year. And what's more American than Campbell's tomato soup? <laughs> However, I have to share with our <laughs> listeners that Carmen being of, of Italian taste has never had Campbell's tomato soup. And yeah. I can't get her no, in the middle of February <laughs> to make a grilled cheese and dip it in tomato soup. She just won't do it. So I have issues. Yeah. <laughs> 
well, you know, you know, good tomatoes. You don't want processed tomatoes. I can't do it. I'm sorry, Andy Warhol. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there is a funny website called tomatoesareevil.com. <laughs> And on this website, you can shoot tomatoes and build evil-looking tomato people and have all kinds of tomato fun, juicy fun. So here are some fun tomato facts. Superstition once had it that placing ripe tomatoes on a mantle when first entering a new dwelling would guarantee future prosperity or would ward off evil spirits. So pin cushions, I think we've all seen those yeah. pin cushions, yeah. were in lieu of ripe tomatoes. And that's how pin cushions became red and that a shape. tomato shape. Yeah, I always wondered about that. I yeah. did too. It's kind of an odd, but they're always that tomato. Yeah. Uh, nurserymen also use tomato seedlings the way miners use canary birds. The seedlings cannot survive the smallest amounts of natural gas, so they're placed in greenhouses to warn of leaking gas heaters. Mm. So that's that's a pretty interesting. You can put a tomato in your boiler room mm-hmm. and see if there's any <laughs> leaking gas. If the tomato dies. Yeah. <laughs> and according to the 1996 edition of the Guinness Book of Records, the largest tomato ever grown weighed in at 7 pounds, 12 ounces. Now that's bigger than an average newborn baby. Mm. That's a big tomato. Yeah. Tomatoes are used in many food products, of course. Um, tomato sauce, tomato ketchup pasta and pizza according to a steel packaging council survey of 1997 68 percent of chefs use canned tomatoes for convenience quality and flavor there are many different recipes for tomato sauce and every italian family of course has their favorite no two tomato sauces are identical this is reflected in the sicilian expression he is always different like a sauce. Yeah, I can never make the same tomato sauce. I mean, I don't mm. follow a recipe, mm. but every time I make it, it comes out differently. Say it in Italian. Um, lui è, uh, è sempre differente come la salsa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in 1981, the USDA chairman declared ketchup to be a vegetable in order to justify the Ronald Reagan administration budget cuts in the school lunch program. I, I remember that, and I was appalled. Yeah. That was, I was like, ketchup? Ketchup is not a vegetable. Well, I found one final quote before the break, and then we're going to come back and talk with gastronomic historian Sarah Lohman <laughs> to give us some recipes. Um, and this is from Andy Rooney. The federal government has sponsored research that has produced a tomato that is perfect in every respect, except you can't eat it. We should make every effort to make sure this disease, often referred to as progress, hmm. that it doesn't spread. So Thank plant you. heirlooms. Yes. Now we're going to listen to Stereo Labs Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Stay tuned. We did plants.
This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants. Well, I had a mouthful of tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Sarah, this is amazing. Well, we are snacking on, I, I busted out during the break, some gazpacho, but it's not gazpacho how we really think of it today. So this gazpacho recipe comes from um, um, a relative of the Jeffersons, Mary Randolph. Uh-huh. And Mary Randolph wrote one of the very earliest American cookbooks, 1824. There are very few that predate her. And she's generally considered uh, to be the first regional cookbook. They're, I, I want to point out, too, that they're taking this time while I'm talking to stuff their mouths <laughs> full. <Shh. laughs> they're vigorously yeah. chewing while I'm, I'm talking. I'm trying not to chew into the microphone. <laughs> so what's interesting about her book is that it's also the first time a tomato recipe appeared in print. Mm-hmm. There's one that's been found earlier from a 1770 manuscript that's now you can get in a book form. Um, but this is the first one. And it, not only that, it had 17 tomato recipes, which is kind of interesting, including yeah. the first recipe, not just in America, but ever known for gazpacho. They think that it came from a friend of Mary Randolph's that had spent some time living in Spain. Mm-hmm. Gazpacho has a history of being a peasant dish. So we, the historians think that's also why it hadn't been in print, that it just wasn't considered a high-end food. It was a passed-down exactly. family recipe. Family like, thing and something lower class. Original right. cookbooks were for courts, essentially, yeah. to make really right. fancy things. We don't think about it as rustic like this. So she, not having that kind of familiarity with it, she's thinking this is a really, really tasty dish. What's interesting about it is that um, the ingredients aren't pureed. In fact, I'll read the recipe for you. Gazpacho. It's labeled as Spanish, too. It says, put some soft biscuit or toasted bread in the bottom of a salad bowl. Put in a layer of sliced tomatoes with the skin taken off and one of sliced cucumbers sprinkled with pepper, salt, and chopped onion. Do this until the bowl is full. Stew some tomatoes quite soft. Strain the juice. Mix in some mustard, oil, and water and pour over it. Make it two hours before it is eaten. And that's all I did. That's such a crazy recipe from what I think of as gazpacho. Yes, not only what yeah. you think of as gazpacho, but a lot of um, recipes that use fresh vegetables weren't really written down, right. to the point where some people thought for a long time that colonial Americans were not eating salad. But the truth is, when you're eating fresh vegetables, you don't have a lot of recipes for French ve- fresh yeah. vegetables. You cook them, you, you cut them up, you cut and them you up. eat them. Right. So right. why would it be in a cookbook? Right. This is a little bit more complicated, and yeah, the only thing that's gazpacho-like is that you have this kind of mustard and oil you put over top, but it is very much like a, a modern salad in a lot of sense. It's interesting too, though, with the biscuit, it's mm. kind of reminding me a bit of lasagna. Mm, you know, it has yeah. a layer. Yeah, that's interesting too. So and, cold lasagna and with the carb. Yeah, you know that like the layers of carbohydrates, like yeah. the lasagna. Noodles. And I'm sure Virginia's in Virginia, the tomato grew very, very well. Yeah. So they had a lot of tomatoes to deal with and to, and it, to use to use up. And yeah. this is a great recipe for using up your tomatoes too. Um, and I also. Have have read too that the kind of use of tomatoes spread up from the south so it's not surprising that the first place tomato recipes appeared were in the south it seemed mm-hmm. to go up 
from the Mississippi up into New England later, mm-hmm. presumably originally from Mexico and Central America on up into the Americas. Mm-hmm. So that's the earliest gazpacho recipe, which 1824, who would have who thought? Right. And it's really cool and really different, too, so I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. We're also snacking on some Bloody Marys, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> so the Bloody Marys, now, I, I gotta ask you, Carmen, because you're taking a, a swig there. Mm. These have a secret ingredient that is different than Bloody Marys as we think of today. You want me to try to guess it? Yeah, and I'll give you a hint. It's How actually- good is your palate? <laughs> <laughs> Very poor. It uses... <laughs> Compared to some of the people on the station. <laughs> yeah. It um, does not use vodka. So what is the alcohol that's in that Bloody Mary? Can you tell? I think it's gin. gin. It is. <laughs> yeah. You are absolutely... Which I actually <laughs> like better. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, when I, I actually... When I read that, I said, you know what? Vodka is such a neutral spirit. You put mm-hmm. vodka in when you want alcohol in. You don't want to flavor anything else. I'm probably going to, you know, get some trouble for saying this, but that's, for me, a reason why I don't like vodka. Vodka reminds me of being in college and, you know... <laughs> pouring it down your throat. Exactly. <laughs> and mixing it with sherbet and fruit punch or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, Jello. <laughs> Yeah. In my mind, and I, I, I challenge anyone to email me and, and vodka me differently, but in my mind, it's <laughs> an alcohol about getting drunk, not enjoying getting drunk. Right. How about that? Um, so this when is I, really good. Thank so you. Really good well, with gin. No, I would have never thought to. Isn't put that amazing? And to be honest, I wanted to get a Hendrix gin because I think that the cucumber notes in Hendrix would be really nice pairing with tomato. That's right. right. So this is just a, a London dry gin, which is very good, but I would love to try this again with Hendrix. No. Do you have a date for this recipe? I do. So they think that the it's as a lot of things, a lot of very very important moments in culinary history are often shrouded in myth, and it's all about deciphering which myth is the less least false. Right. So um, we do believe that this was invented by a man who was the bartender at the Saint Regis. His name is Ferdinand Pete Pitouard. So mm-hmm. he was originally a bartender in France, where he claims he added vodka to tomato juice. After Prohibition, he was working in France in the 1920s, 19-teens, comes over here after, after Prohibition, works at the St. Regis, adopts his drink, probably using a tomato cocktail that was on the market here that had Tabasco, Worcestershire sauce in it, and salt and pepper as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but vodka wasn't available in the United States yet in the 1920s and 30s. That really? Was, I was, yeah. When you said that, I was wondering when that Right, when that happened. I didn't happen. want to start talking about It really spirits. happened <laughs> mid-century. And we have a love affair with vodka in this country now, but it really doesn't start appearing regularly until the 1950s and 60s. So he tried gin. And mm-hmm. it was originally called the Red Snapper, which I think is oh, also nice. a great That's name. That's a great name. I like that yeah. better, though. Yeah, the Red Snapper. So maybe that we should give that title and bring back the gin Bloody Mary as, uh-huh. as the Red Snapper. And other than that, it's a very classic recipe with lemon juice, um, tomato. I actually used a strained tomato puree that I found at a carton in my grocery store. Mm-hmm. But a great way to use up that abundance of tomatoes that you will get in the next month is to make tomato juice yourself. Mm-hmm. You'll probably get a slightly thicker product. Mm-hmm. But just add a little bit of water, you know, to just loosen it up a little bit. And you can do that by just stewing, peeling tomatoes, stewing them, mashing them, putting them through a strainer, or putting them through a food mill. Um, and it'll make, particularly from your garden cup of sunshine tomatoes, a really beautiful, flavorful drink. So we're really tomatoing it up here. And I have to say, Carmen, if you don't like tomato, if you won't drink or eat canned tomato soup, which I have to admit... I don't really like either. Um, there is a great recipe for tomato soup cake. 
in MFK's Fisher's um, book, How to Cook a Wolf, which is her most famous, important cookbook. How to Cook a Wolf Peach. How to Cook a Wolf Peach. <laughs> Perfect. Um, she's got a recipe for tomato soup cake, and I made it. Uh-huh. because It I was, was good? It was really good. It's actually vegan, too, because the tomato soup replaces the milk and the eggs. You don't put any butter in it. I had a dinner party and made my guest my guess, guess the secret ingredient. No one got it. So it's a really rich spice cake that adds a really wonderful undertone. That's a great way to use up the tomatoes. Speaking of which, I have something to taste Ooh. as well. Um, the the tomato in its pure form from my garden. Ah. What kind of tomato is this, Carmen? Um, there's Do you remember? Two, these two, there's two types. There's Matt's Wild Cherry, which is the small red one. Oh. And then there's one of my favorites, which is Sun Gold. Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, the little cherry ones are adorable. These are really tiny. They're kind of wild. They're so small. Yeah. And um, these were originally grown by a mm. local grower. Mm. But Sun Gold is one of my favorite cherry tomatoes. Sun Gold is amazing. It's like sugar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These kind of tomatoes are the ones that had me hop the tomato fence. Yeah. Growing up, really, you two? Yeah. Growing up, I feel like all I had access to was the hothouse, you know, just mealy, tasteless, um, everything just terrible about them, tomato. And so I grew up thinking I did not like ripe, fresh tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And then I came to New York. I started getting the CSA. I get this bucket load of tomatoes. And That's I'm like, awesome. all right, we got to make peace with these. Yeah. And now I really, really enjoy fresh tomatoes. They're the like flavor. candy. They're so delicious. Tomato flavor isn't present in a lot of grocery store tomatoes. And oh, I'm no. all about, you well, know. Well, there's actually a new book coming out, mm. kind of demystifying this whole industry. Mm. Right, Carmen? You were just talking about it. Yeah, it was on... Um, our competitor, NPR. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we all They're going to buy us one day. <laughs> they need um, our programming. I've never heard of that. <laughs> Jack. <laughs> um, actually, it's about the sinister tomato industry and the, you know, the immigrant labor in Florida. Mm. And mm. It's, it's a very interesting book. And it's just coming out, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Um, I, maybe we could get the author on. Mm. You know, to well, talk. look, I live in a fourth floor walk up in Queens, but I got one of those topsy turvy tomato planters. They're incredible. They're Did it work? Awesome. Did it work? It totally worked. Now, I didn't have enough light, so I got maybe 15 tomatoes off of it, but they were the best tasting 15 oh, tomatoes yeah. I've ever had in my life. Oh, so. yeah. We, I, I have um, on my fire escape, I've mm. got three cherry tomato mm. plants. And, you know, my fire escape between. Us not watering it, you know, forgetting because we have to climb over bicycles and then out a window. And, you know, (laughs) it's it's Brooklyn living Um, when we do go out there, though, to water. The, the reward is that you get to have one cherry tomato, mm. you know, mm-hmm. the, that the squirrel hasn't gotten. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, we are competing with the other so critters. Yeah. But they night. are they are just delicious. And you just don't you can't buy that taste. No. You know, I it's, mean, or if you can someday. buy it, you have to pay a lot of money. You have to go to Italy. 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 You know? Yeah. You've got to scour the, uh, of course, the green markets and but CSAs. Even still, are great well, too. that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. if it's farm grown. Yeah. You know. That then you're gonna get it, yeah. But that right off the vine, that yeah. musky, like, I've never tasted anything like it. Yeah, and when you're buying the tomato, it's not like a fruit that you can kind of sniff it and see. It's you not know, like a peach, it, or yeah, you can, yeah. S- you, you know, just cut into it and it's a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of of tomatoy disappointments. So I, I, you know, I understand your husband. I was very much on the same page. I think it's really tomatoy disappointments, the watery, <laughs> the acidy. Ugh. Like yeah. thinking about a bad tomato, I just hate it. But he hates the slime. It's the a slime, slime factor. Is oh my horrible. god! But when the slime meets 
when the slime meets with mayonnaise on white bread yeah, yeah. and some salt like what better, or bacon yeah what come on yeah you know what better sandwich is i that? had a life-changing blt the other day <laughs> i i um i went to rye house which is off of union square and they have a fried green tomato blt with uh-huh. spicy mayo and it was probably the best sandwich i've had in my entire life that's is that, good. where is it again it, rye house is on east 17th street so they're getting a free plug right now i went there the other day it's a great cocktail bar and that they've got an extensive bourbon collection if you like that and uh their blts on rye their breaded fried green tomatoes Yum. big thick slices of bacon and spicy that sounds mayonnaise. perfect it was awesome. i think i'm gonna head there right now <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome um yeah so i've been changed as far as tomatoes go yeah Good. well i robin this is for you you can convert it's there's still time there's still time yeah tomatoes grow every year <laughs> We're going to keep working on you. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to We Dig Plants mm. on the Heritage Radio Network. Sarah, any final words before? Yeah, I get to plug something. Yes. I do. I do. Um, on August 11th, which is a Thursday at 8.30 p.m., NYC TV is premiering their series Appetite City, which is an eight-part miniseries based on the book by William Grimes. The show is hosted by William Grimes, but features Sarah Lohman. Yay, Believe it or not. Yeah. Um, every single episode, there's eight episodes through going to cut to my kitchen in Long Island City and we're going to cook a recipe on that particular episode's A historic theme. recipe. A historic recipe on the theme of awesome. the show. So I eat everything from uh, pickled oysters to pig's feet to one of the best things I've ever had, an apple pancake from Ruben's Deli. So wow. tune in. That's August 11th at 8.30 and every Thursday after that. And Good. the episodes will be available online at WNYTV.com. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to watch. I can't wait yeah. for that. <laughs> Yay, thank you. So Sarah's blog is for Four pounds flour. That's right. Dot com. Mm-hmm. It's really a fun mm-hmm. blog, and you also do a lot of events. I do do a lot of events. So. Um, if you'd like the recipes for today's show, just log on my blog. I'm going out drinking the rest of the afternoon, so maybe check in tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I teach classes with the Brooklyn Brainery, which is where I'm headed right now. I'm headed to the City Reliquary. They're throwing a big party to celebrate the summer. Brooklyn Brainery has cheap classes about everything. Right. So I'm doing an ice cream making class in a couple weeks there. So check Good. out their website as well. And the summer I'm doing, excuse me, this fall, I'm going to do several events with the Brooklyn Historical Society too, including on October 20th as part of Cider Week, we're going to do an apple-based alcohol event. Well, I'm um, there. Yeah. yeah. Four, four cocktails. We're going to feature local producers. We want to bring back um, mm. apple alcohol in the state, yeah. which would mean a lot to farmer's economy here, too. So and it's a little bit of advocacy event. The big apple. The I mean, big we apple. Need it. I know. So we, it's been passe, and now it's time to revive it. Prohibition yeah. killed it. We're bringing back a lot of other things. So cider and apple. Love cider, and a I lot of people too. laugh at me when I, I know. order cider at a great. bar. It's like a girly drink. They're it's like, delicious. oh my god, why don't you just get a beer? I'm like, no, yeah. I actually really like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so come, bring the bring the haters, and we're going to make some real cocktails. You need Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> to oh, like, I'll get him on the from, phone. From Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Sure. That would be great. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so I'm doing a bunch of events with them. Just look on my uh, blog, and I'll be posting fall event schedule very soon. Good. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. If you'd like uh, to listen, you can tune in to iTunes, mm-hmm. uh, free podcast, or check out the website archive. Happy gardening. See you in the garden. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. 
You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Finger on the Pole and City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August 6th from noon to 4 p.m. The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at 155 Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mopar, Imperial Number no. 9, Mile End, Mexicu, Kraft, Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Computer Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at citywinery.com. Finger on the Pole for City Winery would like to thank our sponsors. Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rekha Vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub-Zero and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com. 